Welcome, this is the Sydney Ideas Podcast, bringing you talks and conversations featuring the best and brightest minds at the University of Sydney and beyond. What we're going to talk about today is what COVID forgot, the orphans of the pandemic response. Here's the podcast. I think as we reflect on what's happened over the last year and this year, most people within Australia would be pretty comfortable with the way our governments and our community has handled the pandemic response. It's extraordinary the few number of cases we've actually had and deaths compared with uh, comparable countries internationally. But all the while we've been focusing on COVID, I think many of us are also conscious of the fact that there are other parts of the Australian healthcare system and other patient groups and the communities that may have been forgotten while our attention was quite rightly on COVID. So today I'm joined by some very eminent people who are going to talk a little bit about their views around uh, the pandemic response and particularly about the things that may have been forgotten, particularly the things that uh, they're experts in. Dr. Catherine McKay is from Sydney Health Ethics in the School of Public Health at the University of Sydney. Our next guest is Professor Heiko Spalik, who is the Dean of Dentistry here in the Faculty of Medicine and Health at the University of Sydney. We have also joining us Associate Professor Melody Ding, um, who is also from the School of Public Health here in the Faculty of Medicine and Health. And finally, Dr. Brendan Murphy, who uh, you will know as the former Chief Medical Officer and more lately as the Secretary of the Department of Health in the Commonwealth of Australia. Welcome to all four guests. So I think the first thing I'd like to ask all of you to reflect on is a little bit about your views of the context, in particular about what you think um, have been the orphans of this pandemic response from a health point of view. So maybe if I start with you, Heiko. Uh, Thank you, Robin. Um, I mean, the title is today The Orphans of the Pandemic and um, Dental Care. I think it's not really an orphan of the pandemic, but has been an orphan all along. Um, the pandemic just shone a very bright light on it. Um, untreated caries, severe periodontitis, so that's gum disease, and uh, tooth loss are among the 10 most prevalent conditions globally, affecting more than 3.5 billion people. So a little bit closer to home in New South Wales, 20% of adults in New South Wales avoid eating certain foods because of problems with their teeth, mouth or dentures. And why is that? Um, Dental care is not part of Medicare. As we think in Australia, the mouth is not considered part of the human body. And so we have 39% of the Australians being eligible for public dental service, but it doesn't mean much because they then end up on multi-year long wait lists. And now with the pandemic and clinic closures, During that time, the most disadvantaged people in our society are even pushed further down the wait list. I just checked this yesterday. In New South Wales alone, we have 92,452 people on the wait list. So what does it mean for us at the university? Um, We train young people to become dental professionals, dentists, or therapists, or specialists. And there's a lot of... um, experiential learning as part of this training. So COVID had an impact on our clinical placements. They were reduced. And everybody thinks in regards to dentistry about dexterity is very important, what you do with your hands. But it's also working with patients, communicating with them, caring for them. And that's equally important. And that was really an aspect 
which we could not do in what we call simulation clinics where students work on rubber heads with plastic teeth. So I think we need to think about the finding the right balance between infection control and the risk of infection through a pandemic, and then also the need for training the next generation of our health professionals. Could you just talk a little bit further about what sort of modifications you needed to make in order to train students in dentistry during the course of the pandemic, particularly when the risk of infection at peak periods was, was, very, was very high or, or perceived to be very high? Yeah. So the didactic trainings that we normally do in a lecture hall, putting this online was actually the easy part for us. Um, and the more complex part is what we did in our simulation clinics, because when the pandemic started, um, we um, instituted infection control measures and COVID safety measures to continue running this um, simulation clinic. And that was initially received with some skepticism, but then we were able, as one of the very few dental schools in the world, to continue our training of our students so that they could graduate on time and join the workforce where they are desperately needed. But clearly, not all treatment and all training, or I should say all training can be done in simulation clinic. It's really important that these um, students develop the rapport with the patients. And that's something I believe um, other jurisdictions and other systems, like in Japan, they work mostly on simulation, not much on patients. But we here in Sydney really think that patient report and communication skills are very, very important. And I'm very proud that we were able to uh, graduate our students on time. And um, I think that's our contribution to um, fighting the pandemic, not only, but also the problems we have in our oral health in Australia. Thanks, Heiko. We might turn to you, Melody. You're an expert on physical health and well-being and management of chronic diseases. So what do you think the, um, this has meant to you in terms of change of context that COVID has um, introduced to your world and in your perceptions of your own areas of expertise? COVID has definitely um, made the whole world aware of the field public health that we're doing because I often think that we work in public health, we work in prevention. We're a field that, you know, when we're doing well, nobody realized that we're actually doing a lot of work in, prevent in preventing the diseases. And it's when um, there's situations like COVID that um, disease outbreak happen and initially we couldn't get our hands on it and the whole world realized that the work that we failed to do before getting here. So I think that COVID really highlighted the importance of preventions. I want to use an analogy here like, you know, for example, a piece of machinery like a car. When we um, own a car, we maintain a car, we take the car to mechanics for checkup, we drive the car in a fashion that doesn't break down the parts too, um, too quickly. So when we're doing all these things well, um, it looks like everything is going swimmingly well and nothing happens. And then when we are really not putting the prevention works in place, when we don't take the cars for checkup, when we don't drive, when we drive recklessly, for example, and then we're more likely to encounter the problem. And then all of a sudden the attention is all about how we fix the problem when emergent situations happen. I really hope that COVID allows us to rethink about prevention, rethink about doing the groundwork, the upstream work that we put into our public health forces and also related areas so that we prevent people from getting sick. And in a 
broader scheme of things, non-communicable diseases to me, or people often refer to as chronic disease, is what I see as the, the orphan of COVID. Because all of our attention is on the urgent matter, and we often forget what's important. So to put things into the context, in Australia, about 90% of the deaths are attributable to non-communicable diseases. Even in worldwide statistics, 70% of the deaths are due to um, non-communicable disease rather than infectious disease. Even in the last year, so the WHO estimates of death from COVID is more than 3 million. But at the same time, ischemic heart disease killed more than 13 million and stroke killed them more than more than 9 million. So this is the context out there. And we must take the same um, initiative effort and consolidated, consolidated efforts to address non-communicable disease continuously beyond COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, you make some great points, Melody, and I was just reflecting last week, I heard some statistics that we were now consuming 110% of uh, more than our normal blood supply, more than what we normally use. And that's largely because patients have delayed and delayed and delayed their um, routine surgery. And so the surgery becomes more complex, the more longer time in intensive care, the more use of precious resources like blood products which is interesting and it follows along from what you're saying is if we don't keep the car tuned up early, then we start to get to crisis point and then we have all these other knock-on consequences that we're actually now starting to see hit our hospitals um, on a daily basis and manifest in all sorts of ways. Now, Catherine, can I turn to you? Um, your expertise is in gender and justice um, ex equity. So I wonder if you could reflect on this question from your own point of view. Yes, absolutely. And thank you, Robin. And I think when I was asked to be on the panel, I was thinking instead of what did COVID forget, I thought about who did COVID forget. And the group that really stands out to me, and I think this actually meshes with what Melody was just saying and what Heiko said earlier. For me, it's the working class, especially. It's hourly paid workers, especially women, especially if they're members of Aboriginal or Asian background communities or others that are racialized in white Western society, and especially if they have caring responsibilities. So if they have care for elderly parents or if they have children, there's been a massive burden of care falling upon this group throughout the pandemic. Women make up the majority of hourly paid workers in Australia and women of color make up the majority within that majority. And though this is true, especially true during lockdowns, um, the care of elderly parents who are wary of infection and the care of children who need to miss school because, say, they're awaiting a COVID test, exam, for example, continues even outside of lockdown. So I think the unpredictability of the virus has made it very difficult for hourly paid workers with caring responsibilities to be reliable in the way that they want to at work, to maintain the shifts that they need to achieve a stable pay. The heightened unpredictability of care demands is likely to be true, at least until Australia's population is vaccinated. Um, but even perhaps beyond that, depending on how mutations develop and things like that. And in addition to having care responsibilities, these women have faced economic and employment precarity, which I think the government has done little to ease in a persistent way. So from my point of view, the physical and mental health outcomes of this precarious exhausting, demanding, uncertain, and stressful new context of life in pandemic won't be fully realized for years. It's kind of that upstream stuff that Melody was just talking about. 
And you know, for a fact, I know from experience that when you're in this situation, things like dental care and the, uh, you know, optionals um, go out the window and they, they kind of have to for economic and um, time-based reasons. So the effects on people's mental health and their physical well-being of these women workers and their, and their families, their children will, I think, reveal themselves and continue to develop beyond the next five years, you know, five to 10 and onward going to talk to Brendan next and um, he's obviously had his mind firmly on COVID which is actually terribly important but I guess in quieter moments he's probably had an opportunity to reflect on things that are he feels now are, are being forgotten because of the heightened um, attention on COVID so do you want to share with us your thoughts on this Brendan? Thanks Robin. I think the first thing I would say is that I don't think these things have ever been other than front of mind, uh, you know, all the way through the early phases of the pandemic. We were very, very aware of the impacts of what we were doing on the general health, mental health, uh, uh, emotional health of, of the population. And, and there were a lot of things done to to try and mitigate uh, that impact, but it's not possible to mitigate many of those impacts and you're absolutely right we are now seeing likely the end result of uh, for example the whole health system the public hospitals are in a state of significant uh, demand at the moment and I think that is in part due to the fact that people and hospitals delayed care last year and we have a lot of quite complex people in hospital but we were worried right from the beginning about people not having access to non-COVID healthcare, which is why we sort of introduced telehealth really early on to get so that the people could get to see their doctors, eat prescriptions uh, so that you can sort of get a script sent to your phone. Um, interestingly, some of the impacts were not so much the public health measures, but some rather frightened health professionals withdrawing their services. So I had a big interesting example where, you know, we had to battle with some of the cancer screening services to keep going when when really the outbreak risk was quite low and yet people were, a lot of health professionals were quite frightened in this pandemic and actually didn't want to uh, inter interact with patients despite the fact that we didn't think the public health risk was was very, very high at the time. So that's an interesting reflection. The other thing that I think troubled me absolutely terribly was when we introduced back in March last year physical distancing measures and restrictions, the impact of putting millions of people out of work was uh, was was huge and Fortunately, JobKeeper and everything sort of kept those things, kept people going and kept businesses going. Um, but those long-term effects of people who for at no stage in their life have they ever been out of work, suddenly uh, being unemployed. We were worried about the impact on Indigenous and culturally and linguistically diverse communities. The uh, Indigenous response has done very well, but we were locking down whole remote Indigenous communities and had all of those impacts about not having uh, health professionals and others coming in. Elective surgery, uh, huge issue. I mean, initially there was it was paused because of were concerned about PPE and the availability of that. But once, even when we got that back, actually getting the confidence of our health system to get going again uh, has been uh, re really, really 
interesting. And I think we've got to always remember that and we are in a very risk-averse environment in Australia now. Some of our states and territories are terribly risk-averse and we've got to get at proportional balance between the risk of, of the virus versus the risk of the impacts on the general mental health of the community. And finally, just for you, we we have been very worried about the impact on education. Education, there's a whole generation of health professionals whose practical education has been significantly impaired by lockdowns and remote learning. Um, and and ultimately, the other impact we've, we've seen is not having access to the migrant population who provide a very valuable part of our health workforce. So we are seeing that impact in some remote communities. So all of those things have have been a topic of discussion the whole way through the pandemic and we are doing a lot of things to try and uh, continue to to invest and resolve them in partnership with the states and territories. And Brendan, just a, another follow up is how successful, or how will you measure how successful some of these interventions have been? If you take, for example, telehealth, um, the idea there was to keep people, um, you know, seeing connected with their healthcare provider, etc. Do you think that that has been successful, and how much of that will continue as a mode of delivery? I think telehealth will continue forever. I think people, I think we've got to get the place of it correct. There's a big debate about whether, you know, how good a consultation you can have with a doctor over the phone. I think if it's just getting how you're going, have a repeat script, that's fine. I think it's, I'm concerned about people, and most of the GPs doing telehealth do it by phone. Most of the non-GP specialists do it by video, which I'm much more comfortable with. So we've, well, we've committed to, to the medical profession and the community generally that telehealth in some form or another will be here to stay, but I'm still not sure that we've totally landed what its place is. There are risks to doing telehealth. There are risks to people setting up sort of online businesses. And so we, ha we have to have a lot of checks and balances in there. But I think people, you know, in the, in the, in the past, you know, if you wanted to go and get a repeat prescription for your antihypertensive drugs, you might have to take a day off, half a day off work to go to your GP, sit there for an hour, have a five, 10 minute appointment, get your prescriptions, then go to the chemist. Now you can ring up, you can be in your office working, but ring your GP, the prescriptions ding to you on your phone, you ding it to the pharmacist and pick up the pills on the way home. So those sort of things we don't want to lose. One of the things we wanted to explore a little bit further was when we start to think of solutions, like we're coming out of this pandemic or learning to live under a, a different sort of um, operating environment, you know, how are we not going to create more orphans? How are we not going to engineer solutions that aren't really solutions that end up um, exacerbating our problems or with the best of intent? And as you said, you touched on one there, Brendan, might be a great idea to introduce telemedicine, but we don't want it being used in a, in a way that actually has unintended consequences or unintended costs. So maybe I'll ask Melody first, what are the big solutions you have or the big learnings? And then how do you ensure that that doesn't create further problems? Now we've had this sort of shock treatment for the last year. That's a very good question, Robin. So in the context of chronic disease prevention, we often think about it as a complex problem in a complex system. So there's so many players involved. We really have to think through all these players. And in, in my perspective, we really need to think of health not as just a health problem, but as a societal problem that engages, you know, 
transportation, urban planning, and all the other sectors. And for me, I, I want to, you know, from now on, take more of an optimistic、um, lens to look at COVID because we often see transformation coming out of disruption, right? Creative ideas happens, and、uh, um, so what COVID has really taught us as populations is、um, the importance of health. So we're seeing, you know, there's a lot of. Um, online interest. For example, I'm speaking about my personal research on physical activity、um, in Australia and around the world. That people are engaging in online fitness lessons, for example. And、uh, there's a growing number of interest in cycling. And and if you guys kind of think back at about same time last year, that's probably the time when you couldn't even buy a bicycle or couldn't get your bicycle service because all of a sudden everybody's thinking that. I can't take buses and and trains. I want to take the bicycle to you know、um, as an alternative way to travel. I think all of these is really positive. Now we're almost out of COVID. Hopefully, moving forward, I think we need to think about what the post-COVID world looks like and how we take all these momentums and and turn them into transformation. For example, we have you know in Sydney built so many pop-up bike lanes. But can we make them more permanent changes? Can we work with you know education, transportation, urban planning, all these sectors to to make healthy living, active living a little bit easier? You know, even if not in the context of the pandemic. So I think there's a lot of you know dialogues that need to happen. There's a lot of collaboration that can happen along the way, and COVID might really be the catalyst for you know systematic changes. It's very optimistic view. That's good to hear. So, so Catherine, maybe I can speak to to you next about what you see as this, the new world that's going to be created post COVID, and what's that going to look like for you, and how do we make sure we don't generate more orphans in this process? It's such a difficult question, and I completely, I couldn't agree with Melody more that we have to be looking at, you know, complex health as a complex state that arises out of a complex system, and looking at all of the different parts of it, which include education and housing and your workplace, the kind of work you do. I think. There's been some early collection of evidence that COVID has affected women and women's careers unequally. It's affected women and women's careers to a greater degree than it's、um, affected men and men's careers. And I think one concern that I have, this is something that we'll need to kind of collect data on moving forward, of course, over the next few years. But it's just about how this has set women back,、um, how different work places and work styles are going to be changed permanently. We know that the nature of our work has now shifted massively, even just from inside the university. Our the way that we work, the way that we deliver education has shifted. And this is true for a lot of different industries, and unfortunately, it means that a lot of people are even more precarious than they were before. They were already in precarious environments, and now even more so. So the Treasury reported that when JobKeeper ended on the twenty eighth of March, fifty six thousand jobs were lost in Australia, and we know that this is going to kind of be an ongoing problem as、um, businesses have to lock down kind of again and again. We don't know what's going to happen as the virus mutates, as there continue to be small outbreaks. 
So I think I'm very concerned that women and women of color in particular who work in precarious hourly paid work, who don't have sick leave, who don't have care leave, are going to be put back a lot by what's already happened and perhaps by what continues to happen as we try to get vaccine rates up and try to get a more kind of permanent handle on the virus so that we can do things like open borders. Um, or have a, a more free kind of exchange of people. I don't think it'll really ever go back to the way it was. I think that's one takeaway for me. So Heiko, um, we've learned that the mouth is part of the human body. That's an important <laughs> takeaway. Um, so what's your thoughts now on the, uh, on the new world? I mean, we've, I think we've learned a lot, um, not just how to use QR codes, but really that um, delaying and disrupting dental care has really severe consequences. And I think it's very easy always to lower the priority of dental care and also dental research, I should say, um, given the mostly non-fatal nature of the disease. But it has huge um, social impact. And following on on what Kathleen said, I think we are moving towards a paradigm where oral health and dental appearance are really used to denote status and social position. And um, that really separates the relevance of dentistry to other facets of medicine and introduces really an alternative set of values by which dentistry is measured by society. And so I think it's really important that we use the pandemic as a trigger to think about that all Australians should receive appropriate and timely dental care. And I think it's, many people think about, you know, teeth as pretty important to, important to chew and, you know, uh, swallow your food. But it goes far beyond that. There's a lot of evidence demonstrating that um, there's a higher risk for cardiovascular disease, diabetes, mental health, and persons with poor oral health. So not funding dental treatment and dental research and dental education is missing out on how we can improve general health and therefore also lower the uh, cost of the whole healthcare system. So I think we need to change that dentistry is not a luxury, but a necessity. And um, that also requires some societal changes. And one of the things that I've just been reflecting on is how um, some barriers to previous activities were broken down during COVID. And, and if I could think of research as an example of that, where um, traditional barriers around data sharing, around collaboration internationally, that had been in existence forever and impossible to actually pull down, finally became possible. And I know there was some fantastic work funded on COVID and genomic you know, identification of variants and that moves so fast. So are there other examples or anything you want to highlight as really extraordinary positive outcomes that perhaps we need to make sure we don't lose during this next period? Um, maybe I'll start with Melody and then ask the rest of the panel. Yeah, I think I mentioned a, a few over there and uh, I actually did a analysis on Google Trends, just looking at people's search behavior before and after COVID. And what we saw in Australia is about 20 times higher than ever people searching for exercise. And that started during the lockdown last year and that high level actually sustained. I think there's a lot of awareness out there. I think there's a lot of, you know, campaigns and public messagings in terms of the importance of pre preventing um, chronic disease and staying active during the pandemic. Because one thing we know is that a lot of the unfortunate victims of COVID who had severe symptoms or died from COVID tend to be the ones who are physically inactive and uh, have obesity and other chronic conditions. 
So I think there is definitely, um, like I mentioned earlier, an, a higher awareness and, uh, and, and also people are using the um, online platform so much more than before. So not only using that for, you know, physical activity lessons, for example, which breaks down some of the barriers to access that we previously identified, but also using that as a way to connect with people that they cannot see in person. And we're seeing, you know, e-health literacy and in, in generally speaking, um, online literacy um, improving with, you know, grand, grandparents learning to use Zoom to socialize with their, um, with their grandchildren, for example. I think all of these are positive and uh, we're seeing people flying less because a lot of the work um, that used to be done by in-person meetings are now, you know, proven to be not only possible, but actually going quite well with virtual meetings. So hopefully that reduction in carbon emission as a result of, you know, uh, reduced flying, all of these changes will be here to stay. So that's very optimistic. I'm a very, I'm a bit skeptical sort of person, but don't you think that once, you know, the, the necessity to exercise because your lockdown sort of passes, uh, that people will revert back to their slovenly ways. They'll fill their mouth full of sugar. They'll do all the, they won't exercise. How do we make these good habits stick? And do you have any thought on that? Yeah, that's why we need to not only target the individual, we need to target our environment, right? That's why I mentioned um, bike paths and cycling infrastructures, because if we can sort of, you know, uh, lure people into cycling during COVID out of necessity, but we actually give them a good experience, we give them a protective, you know, buffer from the traffic and good cycling infrastructures, and then people actually... Um, start to enjoy the process and realize, hey, it took me 20 minutes to cycle to work as compared with, you know, 25 minutes driving and parking. Only when we can really support with policies and environment can these positive changes in behavior stay. So that's why it's, it's really important that we kind of drive home the message that we need to involve um, other sectors, you know, as again, transportation is a good example here. To really put this in the forefront as, you know, post-COVID recovery and help us build the city forward um, to facilitate healthy living. So, Brendan, how are you going to convince your counterparts in other parts of the Commonwealth to follow Melody's advice about good cities, active environments? Um, well, that's, uh, it's actually environmental health and that whole thing is a really high focus of, uh, of you know, the health ministers are interested in this and we are at the health CEO level. But I think just getting back to that point about how things have changed, I think there are some significant enduring changes. I don't think we'll ever go back to the way we were working in the past. I think, you know, I've, I've got about, you know, a quarter of my staff at any one time are, are working remotely. Uh, we we, we used to think that everyone to be a senior public servant has to be in Canberra. Um, I don't think we'll go back to, I used to chair a meeting about once a week in a capital city airport um, and we'd all fly around and uh, sit there with a, a long agenda, whereas during the pandemic we would just get the people together at two hours' notice, make a decision without all of those briefing processes. I mean, a good example was, February 1 last year when I woke up on a Saturday morning and looked at the epidemiology in China and uh, uh, phoned, phoned the Prime Minister and said we need to 
closed the borders and they were closed at 9 o'clock that night. Now, the concept of the processes of government that you would have to go through to bring to a decision like that would normally take, you know, months. And so I think we have developed a nimbleness now that uh, will will endure. And uh, and just and I think we we are. And I suppose one of just coming on to the, the broader health point, we are very focused now on what we can do to strengthen primary care. That that's probably the next objective because that that is the sort of thing that leads to all of the things that we've been talking about today is is how we, we reform and improve our primary care system. So that's been driven very much by some of the experience of the pandemic. Catherine, what's your thoughts on on this topic? I do think that um, the changes in workplace culture have been really good for certain people. Like the workplace changes that people who are in salaried jobs would face, I think have made working from home and therefore being a carer a lot easier. So um, parents or people who are taking care of elderly relatives or people who are taking care of sick partners now have much greater flexibility. It no longer is a matter of um, having a bum in a seat in order to be doing your job and doing it well. Um, so I think there's much greater recognition that we are effective workers when we're um, not under the immediate gaze of our boss, perhaps. But that's an uneven result. The people who are hourly paid, um, who don't have paid leave, are still facing that problem. I think that's a massive problem for controlling the virus. And I even heard on the radio this morning that it's a problem for people getting vaccinated, that they can't have time off to go get vaccinated. So we need to we need to we need to solve that in addition to maintaining the good changes that we've found. And I think for me, definitely having my older relatives learn how to use Zoom has been a real lifesaver because because of the pandemic, we've been having meals together that we would never do before, even when I was living overseas before, because it never occurred to us. So that's one of the silver linings that I think we should take forward. Absolutely. Now, I think it's about time to turn to some of the questions So, um, from the audience. So uh, someone's very keen to understand how the Commonwealth-State divide and the disjointed health system we have could be better connected. And is there something, Brendan, that you've learned about how you can overcome this long-standing barriers created by working in a federation? Thanks. Uh, so the federation is... An interesting beast to deal with, um, and but it's it is it, we are a federation. We have to work in that context. I think we learned a lot about how the federation could be improved during COVID. I think the national cabinet was particularly early in the pandemic, and I was privileged to sit through every meeting of the national cabinet uh, where the, the 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 first ministers, the prime minister, and the premiers and chief ministers decided that they they had to to. To, to make to save the the nation and the economy, they had to make decisions real time, so that you know they would meet for two hours and implement. And so that all of those somewhat uh, tedious processes of federation of meetings and coming up various layers were sort of put aside. And in fact, the whole Council of Australian Government structure has been partially dismantled with a, a new approach so that if we have a problem in health, and a good example might be mental health, where it's crucial that the states and territories and the Commonwealth programs intersect 
properly. So the National Cabinet has sort of, you know, decreed that that there should be a, an early reform process in that space, which doesn't involve, you know, years of consultation and planning, but actually getting a, a set of agreements and working out some joint programs. And so I, th- I think it is always going to be problematic. We've got a We've got to connect our primary care system with the local health networks and that's being accelerated through the PHNs. And uh, as, as I said earlier, I think the, the glue that will hold this all together is a strong primary care system. So, you know, there, there are there are issues with working in a federation, but the, the capacity for joint decision-making, rapid decision-making and collaboration has been significantly improved over the last 12 months. You, you sometimes hear a bit of political noise coming out sometimes, um, but but mostly it's working well. Thanks, Brendan. Um, maybe we could go to, to you, Heiko, next, and then I'll come back to Brendan. There's a question here about um, the Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety for Oral Health. Yeah, thank you. I think um, Recommendation 38 is obviously the one we are most interested in, where it essentially says that... Um, aged care facilities uh, need to um, have someone, a uh, dental professional, helping and supporting the uh, residents of these um, facilities. And I think it's very important that it talks about dental professionals. So it doesn't have to be a dentist. It could be an oral therapist who could um, do a lot of the work and, and help and cost-effectively um, support the residents. Unfortunately, in the past, um, oral health um, was always on a back burner when it came to residents in aged care facilities as well as in home care um, because there are other things perceived as more important. And um, I think this obviously is something where people suffer. Many of them cannot express their dental pain and suffer um, silently. And I think that's something which um, should not happen to any Australians. And we need to address this. Unfortunately, it doesn't look like there's full funding for these recommendations. And so we will hopefully see some uptake in that space. But um, as you well know, without proper funding, and uh, this will become increasingly complicated. So let's move on. We've got a, a, some other suggestions here about what COVID forgot. And then and the next one is around the disability sector. Um, people have, um, or this um, questioner has asked about, you know, what the speakers think about um, the disability sector and are they being forgotten through this era of COVID. Catherine, could I ask you to pick that one up? Yeah, definitely. I think it's true that people with disabilities have been um, orphaned or forgotten by responses to the pandemic. I think it's a difficult um, group in some ways because not everyone with disabilities have been affected in the same way because obviously not every disability is alike. So certain kinds of um, impairments, like a hearing impairment, a person is otherwise just as healthy as I am. So we're not um, equally, we're, we're similarly vulnerable to the virus. A person with that kind of disability isn't more vulnerable to the virus. There's an assumption that everyone with disability will be more vulnerable to the virus. So there's this kind of unequal and unfair assumption that there's this particular kind of vulnerable group in our society that needs extra protection when actually they kind of just need what they've always needed, which is accommodation of different kinds by wider society. Some things have been helpful, like the fact that people are meeting on Zoom and often that can have closed captioning has been very beneficial for some people. Being able to flexibly work from home again is really helpful for some people who have inter 
intermittent um, effects from their disability. Other people have been really adversely affected by social exclusion, by being made completely isolate, isolated from um, normal community activities that they would have engaged in in their lives. So it's been a really uneven um, effect, I think, on people who have disabilities. And I think that's um, a really big area of work that people who are at University of Sydney in the um, Disability Studies Center and also at the um, Disability Center at UNSW have been working on quite a bit to figure out what's happening with this group and what to do going forward to make it better. So do you think there's sufficient research going on to sort of map out those impacts? As you say, the impact is different on people with different disabilities. Is there is there studies going on in that area, to, you, to your knowledge? I think there are some, but I don't think that it's sufficient. I think that there should be a little bit more support for that, just that kind of research, because disability is something that reaches into everyone's lives, whether it's temporarily or more longer term. Um, a lot of illnesses can disable us um, for shorter or longer term, or you might be, you know, sort of born with a kind of impairment that is interpreted as a disabling condition. So I definitely think that that area needs a lot more research, um, especially in light of the pandemic. But it's just, it's one of those issues that was always there in the background. Like Heiko said about um, oral care, in fact, it was always there in the background, but this has really brought it to the fore. Let me just go to one more um orphan um, question, which is around um, a question of wanting to us to talk a little bit about mental health care and the funding for the extra sessions were fantastic, but the capability, workforce development, you know, what are our plans on health workforce? Um, and maybe this is one again for Brendan. I know you were heavily involved in leading a lot of this work. Has your views on what the workforce needs are changed now? Yes. Look, not really changed. I think it's just a exacerbated some of the issues that were existing in the past. I just came back to disability. I, I actually would say that we didn't forget disability. We had a fantastic outcome with hardly a handful of cases of COVID in the disability community. We were engaging the disability community the whole way through. And the most complex part of the whole vaccine rollout that we're doing now, I've got teams of literally hundreds of people going into disability homes, working with the NDIA and delivering vaccines into uh, disability care. So I think the disability aged care did have some, you know, in the Victorian second wave, some, you know, pretty tragic outbreaks, but we have protected our disability community incredibly well through COVID and we're quite proud of that. But on back to workforce, so mental health, again, a big mental health reform package in the last budget, and a big part of that was a workforce package. We have to get uh, more mental health professionals. There's no doubt about it. We've got to make, uh, and in our medical workforce strategy, there's a big focus on how we can proactively get people into psychiatry and train particularly Australian doctors in psychiatry and, and change the training paradigm. But it's much more than doctors. Uh, we need a whole lot of mental health nurses and, again, a range of strategies to to train uh, more people in mental health nursing to get young nurses into that specialty and, and also allied health. So that was a – there was a lot of, med, of, of mental health workforce in that and absolutely, you know, we found that during the pandemic when in Victoria, when during the that second wave, Commonwealth set up some really innovative new mental health clinics uh, 
you know, set them up within about a, a week uh, when they normally would have taken two years. And the only barrier to getting them going was actually finding the workforce. But in that environment, people did turn up. So workforce, the health workforce is a really, really crucial issue. And we've got to start training the right sort of people for the jobs that we need in the future and and not and you know making sure that we we use the levers that we as governments have and universities too to uh, attract people and and get them into the areas where we need them and and I think one of the um, other questions that has come up which was sort of on my mind as you were talking is the social isolation and people that's fabulous with Zoom and it's fabulous that you can connect electronically. But is there, you know, on the horizon, an increasing number of people who are going to have um, issues related to social isolation from, you know, physical isolation from family, friends, contacts? And and what does that mean for their mental health and their well-being overall? Maybe start with Catherine and and then we can hear from the rest of the panel on that. Yeah, I mean, I think part of that is... um, um, for people who have more experience and expertise in um, mental health and psychology to answer. But I think it does connect to a couple of the things that I was saying, especially about people who have disabilities who are young, but who are being um, excluded or who are at home out of some sort of view that that's better for them when they're not at any greater risk, in fact, than any of their peers. Um, I think the social isolation is really um, quite serious. People who were in Melbourne for that um, long lockdown last year kind of have some already showing ongoing effects of just having been isolated in their homes for such a long time. Here in New South Wales and Sydney, where I am, where we are, um, we had it much easier. And I know that my friends and family in other countries have had completely different experiences. So my family in Canada has been through multiple lockdowns. My colleagues in Britain have been through multiple long lockdowns. That impact is kind of connected to the um, to the mental health effects that I see unrolling over the next few years. It's something that I don't think we can even start to measure just yet. It's something that we'll have to see um, over the next few years, how people react when they're back in social settings, how it feels to be surrounded by people again, if we ever do go back to the kind of big crushing settings that we used to have and how people's cues, like one of the questions is kind of about, you know, young workers. If you're picking up on the right kind of cues when you're on Zoom, I think there's some really interesting studies going on about that that's not really in my wheelhouse, but um, I don't know. I think there will be some effects. And I think, Heiko, you've seen that even in the student population, um, as you spoke about earlier, but particularly so with Zoom calls and Zoom training, hybrid learning models. Yeah, and I think it's very important that we have full social interaction and Zoom cannot replace a healthcare provider patient interaction in its full um, capacity. So, as I said, we believe that We've learned a lot from COVID. One of them, one of the learnings is that we can actually do quite a few things when it comes to training in simulation, but not everything. And I think that's really, really important that our students are prepared to um, deal not just with teeth, but with patients and see them as um, complete human beings um, with different needs, which really go beyond um, um, their teeth. Well, we're drawing close to the top of the hour, so I'm going to ask now each speaker to just give me two or three, if you've got three, take-home messages. Okay, so um, given that we've started and ending with the mouth, Heiko, what are your two or three take-home messages and what do you want the audience to go out and do as a result of hearing your points? So as you already um, said, and I think everybody seemed to agree that the mouth is part of the human body, 
let's all work together on finding solutions so that all Australians can actually speak, smile, smell, taste, touch, chew, swallow, and convey a lot of different uh, emotions um, with confidence and without pain, discomfort, or disease. Um, I think that, I mean, what I would really like people to um, take away from this talk is that health is a really complex and multifaceted state, that it involves all kinds of different sorts of well-being. So it involves social, economic, oral, mental, and physical well-being. And I think... Um, for me, the gaps that are appearing between um, people's well-being as a result of COVID-19 is something we're really going to have to keep our eye on going forward. So this is less perhaps for just the general audience, but certainly I think we all have um, a responsibility to send that message to our elected officials to make sure that groups in society who need advocacy aren't left behind by us when we have a platform and a voice to use to help them. So first, I think we need more funding for research on, on chronic disease prevention. COVID-19 has really highlighted um, the importance of scientific evidence. And I think that has particularly helped Australia in, in fighting COVID. And the same goes with chronic disease prevention. So this might not be within the control of the audience, but I think we need to invest way more than we're currently doing in, in prevention, whether that's um, prevention of physical um physical diseases, mental health issues, oral health issues, and, and many others. And the second, I think, um, I just want to remind the audience again, health is not just the issue for the health sector. Health is the issue of so many sectors that are involved in building this environment that we're living in. So it's very important that we keep on reminding us that there's so many partners out there that we can work with to um, not only prevent people from getting sick, but ha having people the opportunity to live well, and, uh, and and physically, mentally, spiritually, many, many ways. Okay, final words to you, um, Dr. Brendan Murphy. Thanks, Robin. I used to be an academic and I used to never pass up an opportunity to seek more money for my area of interest, so good on you. Uh, <laughs> um, we all do that. Um, look, I think the two things I would say is one is we still don't know what the long-term effects of this pandemic will be, and we're certainly not out of it yet. Um, you know, there are countries in the world that are still raging and countries like Australia that have had no real outbreaks has remain at risk. So there is still a long way to go, and we don't know what the long-term non-COVID health effects will be, you know, not, uh, and all of those things that we talked about before. We do need to keep a very careful eye on those trends and the other thing is I think going back to a theme from earlier is let's not uh, fail to benefit from those innovations that we brought about uh, in that time of need and that have really served us well and make sure we build on them and uh, embed them uh, such as you know things like telehealth and, and, the, and the like. Thank you. Well, that concludes our session and I'd like to just um, thank our guests today, Dr. Catherine McKay, Associate Professor Melody Ding, um, Professor Heiko Spalik and Dr. Brendan Murphy. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more links, resources or the transcript for today's podcast, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen ideas or search for Sydney Ideas podcast. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the Sydney Ideas podcast on your favourite app.